This week at Hope Point. It's like Jesus Christ on the cross, spikes through his hands and through his feet, beat to a pulp, naked, suffocating, and in his final breaths, John 19:30 says, it is finished. It's like he took the cup and held it to the world of all of the wrath of God, and then he poured it upside down, and there was not one drop left that he had not paid for. Could look inside the cup, not one drop. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. Albert Einstein said that because of the complexity of the universe, he easily believed in God, but he did not believe in a personal good God because of the problem of pain and suffering. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina, a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in Wheaton, but he's an unbeliever, describes himself as an agnostic atheist. And he said that the thing that caused him to depart from the faith, and unfortunately through his lectures, caused many students at UNC to depart from the faith, is the problem of pain and suffering. The number one question, if you go to an apologetics conference, is why is it God doing something about evil if he, if he could? I mean, it's the greatest dilemma in life for all of us on earth is the problem of pain and suffering. And if you don't have a response to that, not just for others, but for you, you will lose this blessed assurance that we just sang about. For those who study the book of Revelation um, rightly, <laughs> and we have in the past two years, and by rightly, I mean by not trying to pinpoint dates and predictions, <laughs> then what you get out of the book is to see how concerned God is about pain and suffering. His nearness, his awareness of it, and his plan throughout the whole book of doing something about it. And that's what we started looking at last week in Revelation 21. I want to go back through that passage because there was a verse we didn't look at um, in our previous study. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. If you are, are new here, and I met some new people just a moment ago in the lobby, and you know, you're coming in at the tail end of the study of Revelation, you really have come in at a good place because this is a fairly easy part. It's clear. There's no complexities in what we're talking about today. There's cosmic wonders, but not hard to, not hard to understand what he's promising, and that is that at the end of history, Satan will be judged all rebellious mankind would be judged, and then God will eliminate this earth. He will just destroy it and replace it with a new earth. And then a special city that's in heaven will come down to the new earth. And that's what the end of the story is. So God is doing something about pain. You know, most of us, when we think about the book of Revelation, we are saying, I'm encouraged most about no tears, no mourning, no crying, pain, and we say hallelujah for that. It's not to be taken lightly, but that is not the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is our for once in our life. 
complete and total love for God. We will see him as he is. We will love him as he deserves. This is verse three. We didn't look at it last week. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's voice, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he'll be their God. It's like all of a sudden in heaven, there's this loudspeaker with this announcement and it's so stunning to the one who has the microphone that he says the very same announcement twice. God will be with them. God will be with them. Because this has not happened ever in the history of the world to this extent where there's a perfect union between God and people. And this is what makes heaven heaven. No separation at all between God and us as there is, as there is now. If you really want to get a picture of this intimacy that's coming, uh, that others are already experiencing that are now in heaven, uh, I love how... Uh, John said it earlier in the book. He said, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Or if you grew up like I did on the New, with New American Standard, that he will tabernacle or he'll spread his tent over them. And the tent is his radiant glory. The tent is his goodness enveloping them. Uh, my wife and I, when we get uh, the chance to have our grandson Wells at our house and uh, he spends the night with us, uh, when it's time for bedtime, uh, my wife has this special little blanket called his tuck, T-U-C-K, his tuck blanket. It's not just that he's in the bed, but then Lisa takes this like two by four blanket and just completely wraps around it. And you can just see that when that's done, it's lights out uh, because of that extra dose of love and goodness. And that's what Revelation is talking about, except a lot closer. That holy, radiant, uh, infinitely pleasurable, goodness, love, power, peace from God, the essence of God, completely wrapped around us, touching us much closer than your skin is touching you right now. And that's what makes heaven heaven. You know, there was a day when we were close to experiencing that in the Garden of Eden. God and man walked together. It's crazy intimacy there. God and man walked together in the garden. Satan came along and convinced Adam and Eve <clears throat> that he was um, uh, more interested in them than God was. That what he offered would bring them more pleasure than what God had offered. And they believed it. So they uh, Satan said, disobedience will not cost you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they were disobeyed and they were filled with shame. And look what happened after that, Genesis chapter three. Uh, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Well, unfortunately, this is a complete synopsis of the rest of history. That mankind has been believing a lie and once he believed the lie and departed from God, he spent the rest of his life trying to hide from God, resenting God and afraid of God, just like Adam did. And the wonderful thing about the new heaven and the new earth is it will be the complete reversal of the disaster of the garden, a loss of intimacy in the garden of Eden. I love this phrase, God's dwelling place is among them. And then again, the writer, you know, 
The speaker repeats himself. God will dwell with them. So he says it twice because it's so new. It's never happened before. Because the only, you know, the levels of intimacy that God has had with us throughout history, and it started off the garden, that was messed up, and then God, uh, you know, began to dwell with the people in the Old Testament. They journeyed for 40 years in the wilderness, and God, in, in immeasurable kindness, lived in a tent. His, he, he's, he was there to teach them, uh, to uh, correct them, uh, to do life with them and to reveal his purposes to them. <sighs> then when, the, you know, he did that in the tent and then the next part of the kingdom got developed and the tent was replaced with a more elaborate structure, a gold temple, valued, I think, in today's terms, like $80 billion, Solomon's temple, just incredible. But it didn't matter where it was a rugged tent or an immaculate uh, temple, the, the people's hearts, God being with them, it didn't affect their hearts. They were still filled with fear, resentment, doubt, suspicion of God, and not really an attraction to God, even though he was so close to them in these, in these, in these dwellings. So God had to get even closer. And so he did that. That's what opens up the New Testament, the beginning pages of the New Testament. We read these words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, then the Word was God, through him all things were made. So here the description of Jesus, he's described, Jesus is described as a Word. Why? Because, you know, in the beginning God spoke. So it's just reminding us that all of the power that produced the cosmos was accomplished through Jesus. It was the design of God, but the power came through Jesus, who is here called the Word. So when God spoke, it was really Christ speaking the world into existence. And here's the, the mind-blowing part of the same chapter is what the Word did. Verse 14 at the end, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, it wouldn't surprise you that John, who wrote this gospel and also Revelation, is going to use the same word for dwell, skene in the Greek, which means to put up a tent, to camp alongside of. Except here, in verse 14 of John 1, the tent was a human body. And now God living in a body. I told Lisa, that's, I, you know, she knew I couldn't wait to get to church there, but we believe incredible things. The Bible talks about incredible things. I mean, how can you wrap your mind around the maker of the moon and stars, waves and wind, lions and eagles, and all energy in the universe squeezing himself into a human body? Wow. So he did it. He came to be near us. And boy, did he do great things in that body. Through that body, Jesus taught uh, through that body, Jesus healed. Through that body, Jesus wept with brokenhearted people. But the real purpose of the body was to be able to live in perfection for 33 uh, years and then to offer his body to be nailed on a cross so that God could pour out his judgment against sin, the guilt of everyone in this room, uh, times history, into the tent. God poured it into the tent of his son's body. Onto Jesus came the wrath of God so that our guilty record uh, 
You know, what we did in life could be removed because now it was placed on Christ. And Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. And, and that's, a, that's a hallelujah for sure, but the cross did more than just forgive us of sin. Having that burden relieved produced within us a joy of gratitude that now we no longer resented and feared God because we were quite sure of his love. Jesus hinted at that. He took us there that this would happen. On the last night, he was with his disciples, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate uh, you know, the first time that was done with, with his disciples. And Jesus said, Luke twenty two twenty. after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus with his disciples said, hey, um, this, uh, what we're doing right now is fulfilling a promise that was made 700 years ago by God in the Old Testament, but I'm gonna do something that will bring about a new relationship between God and man. And so when Jesus said new covenant, this is what he's thinking of in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, same word, with the people of Israel. Jesus used that phrase. He's thinking about this chapter. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Does that last phrase, that last thing I just read, does that ring a bell? I'll be their God. They'll be my. That's Revelation 21.3 verbatim. This is heaven. This new, perfect intimacy Never to be broken, intimacy with, with God. Because when he opens our eyes to the greatness of his love as seen in Jesus Christ, all that resentment, dread, rebellion is replaced with affection. Imagine this, a 30-year-old man uh, in jail, uh, been there 10 years, uh, Ten years ago, he walked into a convenience store, was going to rob, and, in, and, and to intimidate the clerk, he, he pulled out a gun, didn't really mean to use it, but a customer was in the store and tried to stop the crime. And in the process, the customer uh, was shot and died from his injuries, and it turned out that the customer was the son of the most prominent judge in the state. So the man receives a life sentence and now he's in that jail cell and he's been there 10 years, he's 30. He's thinking, if I live to 80, I've got 50 more years. No hope. And all of a sudden, one day, while he's sitting there, the deputy walks up with a man beside him and the man with the deputy was the judge. And he looks at that inmate and says, I love you. And I forgive you, and I have just been to the courthouse. I have taken your crime off the books. And the deputy opens the prison doors. The inmate walks free. 
Nobody has to tell that inmate, go say thank you. Go hug that judge. Love him. Go do dinner with him. Give your life to serve him. It happens then. That's what happened with the, the new covenant in, in the blood of Christ. It's when we see God's love for us, it's like God removes an old furnace in our hearts that didn't work and replaced a new furnace that's fueled by the Holy Spirit that produces incredible affection for God ever drawing us to him because we're persuaded, assured of his, of his love. Now, that's what's so wonderful about the new earth. Uh, no more... No more temptation. No trial. Uh, no, no doubting. No sin, no evil. Nothing that will hinder our perfect view of God because when we perfectly see God, we will just adore every moment with him. And John, the writer of Revelation, said this in a letter to a a smaller letter to a book, I mean to a church he pastored. First John 3, 2, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, the heaven of heaven is not just we'll be with God, we will be like God. The reason that God is eternally happy, and oh, he is, is because he's undivided, He's never, there's never like he's less than God you know, on Tuesday than he is on Sunday. He's holy, 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 always, always, always. And the Bible says on the new heaven and the new, new earth, we will be holy, 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 always, always, always. Nothing will distract us from enjoying God. We will love him truly, we'll love him completely. We'll enjoy him truly, enjoy him completely. We'll want God to be part of every walk. We want, to be, want God to be with us in every conversation. We want God to be with us at every meal. There won't be any uh, talking to him will not be forced sometimes like it is now in prayer. Obeying him will not be forced and strenuous like it is now in temptation. Uh, serving him will not be a drag like it is now when we're exhausted and just lacking compassion. No, for all eternity, we will yearn for God and laugh with God and sing with God and completely and totally love him. Nothing ever will persuade us to do differently. And that enjoyment of God will just cause us to go even, even deeper let me explain what I mean by that. Have you ever been somewhere where you're looking at something and it's big, it's powerful, and it's beautiful, and you're there, but somehow you say, uh, I mean, especially this is true with guys, I just want to get a little bit closer. And your wife said, don't get close. <laughs> you can't stand it. I want to go closer. It's not enough to be on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You got to go rent one of those companies that operates helicopters so you can ride 3,500 feet into the floor of the canyon and eat dinner by the Colorado River. You want more. 
It's not enough to go visit Niagara Falls. You want to ride on that mist of the maiden to the bottom of the falls and let the mist just soak you. This is what heaven is like. You see God, but you want to take a step closer. And that brings joy, and then you will go closer. And because God is infinitely large, you're never going to finish exploring God, and you're never going to finish having an enlarged joy. So all heaven is like is increasing joy over an increasing experience with God. All that will occur on the new, the new earth, perfect relationship with God. But you need to remember that all of this is possible. This is the big deal. You just can't focus. You miss it all if you miss this. Because of the willingness of Christ to suffer, the new earth is available. Jesus made it clear to us on his last night with his disciples how committed he was to us being in that new <clears throat> that new earth. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, that was a garden in Jerusalem. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus, on the last night of his earthly life with his disciples, walked into the Garden of Gethsemane so he could reverse everything that Adam began in the Garden of Eden. Adam lived for pleasure and brought pain. Jesus entered into pain to bring pleasure. And that's why we're going to the new heaven and the new earth so how do we know that all that Jesus did, all that he promised would come about? Because God tells us in verse 5, back to our main text, Revelation 21, 5, he was seated on the throne and said, I, I'm, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down. <laughs> For these words are trustworthy and true. I'm like, write this down means put it on your calendar. Like right now on God's calendar, this date is fixed. It's going to happen. Write it down. It's going to happen because I'm not going to let, uh, evil can't stop it. Uh, culture can't stop it. Not even a flawed church can stop this from happening because God said, I'm responsible for this because this is what I've been after from the beginning of time. This new city coming down on a new, a new earth. You know, there's a verse, it's not on the board, but I love it in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where God said uh, to the Apostle Paul, um, or, or Paul said about the Lord, even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. It does not depend on us. God's gonna make this happen because it's what he, he wants Revelation 21.6 is massive verse in this. He said to me, it is done. This is, look, this is amazing. This verse, this is what God's gonna say our first day on the new earth. God's gonna say this. It is done right now. It happened today. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Done from Greek word genomai, which means to happen, to come about. Uh, the word end at, in verse six uh, from the Greek word telos to look through the telescope 
at an event way out there and God says, that event that I've been looking at is now here. That phrase, it is done, you're sitting there and saying, that thing, that thing that's, that sounds so familiar. It is done. Where have I seen that before? You saw that or heard that coming from the lips of Christ Seconds before he died, John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. Done. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Who can say that? What dying person can say, I did everything on earth that I was supposed to do. This is what separates Jesus Christ from any other human in the history of civilization. We all die with task unfinished. Not Jesus. No loose ends. No unfinished task. And his whole life was lived for that, doing what God had sent him to do. When he was 12, he told his mom and dad, I must be in my father's house. Then he told his disciples, I must preach the kingdom of God and all the cities. And then he told a crowd in Jerusalem, everything must be fulfilled that has been written about me in the scriptures. And then he told another group of people, I speak nothing on my own. I only speak what I hear from the Father. I always do what is pleasing to him. So when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that. His whole life was that. Never an unfinished day, never an unfinished conversation, never an unfinished moment of obedience. Never an unfinished prayer. 33 years of perfection. And so here, when he's on the cross, it is finished. Just seconds left. It's like, I love how McLaren says it. He said, it's like Jesus was a traveler packing his bags and looking back at his house to see, to make sure nothing was omitted. Everything had been done. And he looked back and said, yeah, it's all, all been done. And tells his driver, let's go. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Look back, everything was finished. And then he gave his command to death and said, take me home to the Father. When Jesus died on the cross and said it's finished, he meant everything that was necessary for every sin, any sin and every sin that you'll ever confess to him, everything that's necessary to forgive you was done when he died on the cross. I don't have anything else for you that's better than that ever. 20 years, I just said my best. Think of any sin in your life. He's ready to forgive it because it's finished. All the suffering is finished. Now, I want to come back to that thought. It is finished, but you won't really understand. You won't appreciate what it took to finish that until we go on a little journey, a little detour. This is not uh, reckless rabbit chasing. It's an important rabbit to find. So I gotta tell you a story. Uh, you remember, uh, there was a moment in the life of Christ when 
the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, is there any way that you in your kingdom could make sure that my two boys have a place of fame and prominence? Oh, moms. Matthew 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, ask a favor of him. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in the kingdom. <clears throat> this is the same kind of mom who you know, goes on Facebook and talks about how adorable her boys are. <laughs> and those who teach her boys know differently. <laughs> hey, you think my boys could have first place billing in the kingdom? serious question, Jesus answered her with a serious answer. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, <clears throat> said that to the boys, because they knew they had, put, they had put their mother up to that. That's why he talked to them. Can you drink the cup I'm gonna drink? And with <clears throat> uh, unrestrained arrogance and ignorance, they said, yep. Verse 22 at the end, can you drink this cup? We can, we can. You know what the cup is? Jesus, I mean, he obviously knew the scripture perfectly. The cup in the Old Testament talks about the wrath of God. So he's asking them, are you, are you able to drink in all of the wrath of God? And their answer, because they didn't think about it, their answer is, ain't no thing. We can do what you do. Little too much, a little overconfident there. So you got all these Old Testament verses about the wrath of God and then that same wrath, which is always called a cup, a cup of wrath, is carried over into the, <clears throat> to the New Testament. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, we saw it months ago in chapter 14. Revelation 14, 9, if anybody worships the beast and its image, and that would be people, they they live for culture. That's what worshiping the beast is. I, I want culture to know me and respect me as its own. Living for the world, peer pressure, all that. Those who reject Christ, so culture will love them. If anybody worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead, which would be culture's acceptance, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So this is what's gonna be given to unbelievers who reject Christ. It gets worse, 14. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And so when Jesus says to James and John, can you handle this offering your body on the cross when all of the wrath of God is poured out on me? They said, yes, we can handle that. I love the Bible's honesty. I just love that story's there. I mean, we're all there. We've all misunderstood the greatness of Jesus. They certainly, they certainly did. So when Jesus died on the cross, he drank in all of the wrath of God so that you and I would never drink the wrath of God. Let me say that again. Christ drank all of the wrath of God so that we who believe in him will never drink any of the wrath of God. It's amazing. So now we, we come back to what it means for it is finished. 
The first it is finished. John 19.30. It's like Jesus Christ on the cross spikes through his hands and through his feet, beat to a pulp, naked, suffocating. And in his final breaths, John 19.30 says, it is finished. It's like he took the cup and held it to the world of all of the wrath of God. And then he poured it upside down and there was not one drop left that he had not paid for. You could look inside the cup, not one drop. I talked to a man after the first service. Today he'd been here, heard that. And when we celebrated the Lord's Supper and we drank that cup, which we will in a minute, he said, I made sure there was not one drop of juice. After the life I have led, not one drop of juice left in that cup. Too, so I could remember, none of the wrath of God will fall upon me. All of it, last drop, fell on to Christ. So now you know what the big deal is about. It is finished. I've drunk in all the wrath of God. So that's it is finished, number one. John 19.30, then the same writer, but now in Revelation, Revelation 21.6, now you basically have your second, it is finished, it is done. So the first it is finished is like laying a foundation for the city so that anybody could go there if they'll confess their sins to Christ and you know, give their life to him. That's first, lay the foundation. And then the second it is finished is Jesus actually building the city where we live forever and ever. And so you say, where's the joy? Like Einstein, Bart Ehrman, where's the joy on this earth? I mean, even Richard, where's the joy on this earth when times are hard and you have still not yet suffered really? Where's the joy? The joy is looking at the two bookends of it is finished, looking back to the cross where all of my sins are paid for, looking to the new city where I'll never know sin again. Joy, joy. That's how you handle earth. And so you can picture these two bookends of it is finished like two mountains with a plain, wide, long plain in between them. And that plain is history now, 2,000 years old. Mountain one, mountain two, 2,000 years. The kingdom of God has been advancing. And God has been finishing the proclamation of it is finished. For 2,000 years, it started in Jerusalem. Fearful, cowardly disciples, the Spirit of God comes upon them. They start preaching in the city. 3,000 people get saved. They believe this message. They preach a little bit more. Two more thousand people get saved. Then they go north into Syria. People get saved. Then they go west into Turkey. People get saved. Then they go a little farther over to Rome and to Italy. Then they have ambitions which God fulfilled later into Spain. Then eventually, Reformation, Germany, England, across the Atlantic to the Americas. Then God begins to build a missionary force and the gospel goes south into Africa, to the Middle East, and to the Far East, and from north to south. For 2,000 years, the message of it is finished is being finished. And idol-worshiping pagans and people who've wrecked their lives like me, have come into the kingdom when they heard the message of it is, it is finished. And so now, you say, it's our turn to be part of finishing the it is finished message. 
So what is it gonna to take to do that? Well, Paul told us in Colossians 1, 24, I rejoice in what I'm suffering and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking, unfinished, in regard to Christ's sufferings. Well, how could anything be lacking? Well, the only thing that's lacking is the telling of it and the loving of it. So as long as there's one person, one village on earth that hasn't yet heard the story of it is finished on the cross, it's unfinished, still lacking. They haven't heard of Christ's sufferings. And as long as there's one area in your life or my life that is not yet gloriously surrendered to God, it is still unfinished. That's why he brings us to church every week to finish a little bit more in between these two mountain peaks. We are to be like the Moravians who used to pray, may Christ receive the reward of his suffering. And what is that reward? The reward of his suffering is that the people that he died for would come to him. And those who come to him would say like you are today as we're about to do the Lord's Supper, may you finish, O God, every work you had planned in my life. May you finish, O God, every work you've planned through my life. May you finish your work in the world through me, through us, your church. So what about you, friend? What does God want to finish in you today? And will today is your opportunity through the Lord's Supper and through singing and all that to say, finish. These are incomplete areas in my life. Finish them. Will you say today, yes, God, I surrender to you. I come again to you. Finish your work in this area of my life. Or will you say, like the church did at Sardis at the beginning of Revelation where Jesus offered this rebuke to them, wake up. Strengthen what remains, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Will you say, yes, finish? Or will Jesus come to you and say, there's unfinished business in your heart, unfinished business through your life. May Christ receive the reward of his suffering, our fully surrendered hearts. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.